Hello, I'm Joshua Graceberg. And I'm Jacob Friedman. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful, definitely non-Twitter commentary and a side helping of comedy. We'd like to welcome back Jacob Foster, an alumni of our high school and who identifies as center-right. Jacob, welcome back. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. The hearings for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett have been underway. Well, they have finished, but they occurred, I believe, last week. What are your thoughts on her nomination? Concerned about the process of adding, uh, filling a vacant seat during election year. I think in general, it hasn't been done after the primaries have started. uh, And it's breaking a precedent that goes back, I think, seven decades. So I think there's some legitimate concerns about that process. And I think they filter into broader concerns in our country at this time about the breakdown of norms, particularly norms that have restrained politicians and political leaders uh, from giving in to their worst and most partisan instincts. So I think that's worrying. Though I do think Amy Conan Barrett herself is a remarkably impressive justice, I think would be a great addition to the court, albeit I would prefer personally if she was added after the election or under a new president. When you say oh, Amy Coney Barrett would be a good addition to the Supreme Court, does does that mean that you would support a more conservative majority on the court, which could possibly legally threaten the Affordable Health Care Act? And some are saying Roe v. Wade. What do you think of that? First off, I think it's important to distinguish between uh, political and legal conservatism. Uh, the Supreme Court's had a quote-unquote conservative majority, which generally means, you know, justices appointed by a Republican president who don't start straying way too far to the left on either political or legal issues. Um, And it's hardly had some kind of hard right set of judicial opinions. Like, I mean, their most prominent ones over the past year were probably expanding the definition of sex under the Anti-Discrimination Act, one of those 60s pieces of legislation, uh, like essentially creating or reinterpreting existing legal protections to be massively expanded uh, for trans and gay people, as well as upholding abortion rights, which has been a pretty common phenomena under Roberts. So would Amy Conan Barrett change the politics to be more quote-unquote conservative of the Supreme Court? I mean, probably. But one, I think the connection between judicial ideology and political leanings is pretty tenuous at best. And two, I think it's probably better if the court has a more restrained view of the Constitution and focuses most change as something, enforces most changes to existing laws as something that needs to be done by the legislature. I mean, I certainly agree with you, Jacob, but there is a difference between being conservative politically and being conservative judicially. But in the past, the court has been a conservative majority five to four with John Roberts really being the swing vote. But with Amy Coney Barrett possibly solidifying a conservative majority, regardless of whether Justice John Roberts flips or not, I mean, how do you think that would affect future decades of American history? I think, one, the Supreme Court is a pretty reactionary body. So I actually think the Supreme Court's going to be much more affected by what kinds of pieces of legislation brought before it. Um, certainly, I think, you know, it's looking likely we'll see a pretty dramatic blue wave on November 3rd. 
And so I think if there's a quote unquote conservative majority on the Supreme Court, I think Democrats will be a lot more mindful in passing legislation of whether it's consistent with the Constitution or at least an originalist view of the Constitution. So I think it could have that kind of impact. It certainly could impact legislation, uh, though I'm personally a little dubious that we're going to see like Roe v. Wade overturned in the next couple of years, in part because my hotter take is that I think one of the key differentiating things about Amy Conan Barry, she has a lot more respect and concern for stare decisis than a lot of her predecessors, which is the reason it was upheld uh, under previous conservative justices like Sandra Day O'Connor. I believe that was her reasoning why she also a conservative justice uh, upheld Roe v. Wade in the 90s. So I think what's important to understand about how Supreme Court justices affect history is really their only tool, or certainly their only tool if they have an originalist view of the Constitution, is to restrain the actions of the legislature. At the end of the day, I think a much more restraining fact on how effective the legislature will be is going to be political infighting and partisanship, much more so than the Supreme Court. Considering that the election is coming up and there are fears of a Bush v. Gore on steroids scenario. There have been calls for Amy Coney Barrett, if confirmed, to recuse herself from any such potential case, considering her considering that her nomination was, was this close to the, to the election. Do do you think that she should step aside, or is it okay, or do you believe that is okay for her to? rule on a potential matter during this election? First off, I suspect Amy Coney Barrett's actually more qualified to answer that. I think she is someone who cares enough about the Constitution and the rule of law that she would recuse herself in situations where it's appropriate. What I really hope the Supreme Court doesn't do is that there is a 5-4 ruling, a la Bush v. Gore, that the outcome of the election hinges on, um, which is with the real possibility that it comes down to something like, oh, ballots cast after... November 3rd in the state of Pennsylvania, or ballots not postmarked before November 3rd in some state, which should not be counted under the law of that state, but a federal judge ordered the state to include them, shift, you know, the electoral vote of one state in a way that switches the election. Like, it's a pretty unlikely possibility, but certainly something that's conceivable. If that is the case, I really hope the Supreme Court does not come to a 5-4 decision uh, especially if Amy Conan Barrett's the deciding vote. But in general, I think that's an area where, as Roberts has shown in the past, I think with Backage most recently, uh, he is capable of building a broader than 5-4 consensus when it's necessary on a decision. I certainly hope the Supreme Court on a decision that controversial would harken back to something uh, you know, like that John Marshall used a lot with controversial decisions. Like when dealing with the Midnight Judges, he got a 9 nothing consensus. So I think having a nine nothing consensus on this issue that concerning would be worthwhile if only to prevent some sort of mass unrest. And I think the final point to make on that is how unlikely it's actually going to come down to that. Because the other thing is even with Bush v. Gore, when we're talking about like counting hanging chads or finishing the recount, like it was pretty unlikely that had Florida continued its recount, it would have brought back a different outcome. Uh, so I suspect any case the Supreme Court will be ruling on will be a very technical matter that may or may not actually be likely to affect the outcome, rather than just being a very vague but technically correct mathematical possibility of changing the outcome. I do think the issue would be a 5-4 decision, which could be seen as illegitimate by a lot of people, whether or not Amy Conan Barrett is the deciding vote. 
Uh, I think people have plenty of political attacks to undermine any given member of the Supreme Court uh, if they see them as the deciding vote. And it's worth remembering that under the original construction of the Supreme Court, uh, as envisioned by the Constitution, it was an even number of justices. It was six justices, I believe. And at various points, it's been eight and ten justices. So there's a long history of the Supreme Court having an even number of justices, which is probably the best way to ensure that the Supreme Court is coming to a consensus that isn't just a 5-4 kind of decision um, and has a little bit more gravitas, even if it's only one deciding vote. Many people call Amy Coney Barrett the female Antonin Scalia. In your opinion, what do you think the differences, the main differences are between Scalia and Barrett? Well, I actually think one of the most prominent ones is probably Roe v. Wade. Like, I think uh, Antonin Scalia spent a lot of time pretty clearly signaling that he would have been willing to go against stare decisis and overturn Roe v. Wade, which is something that um, Amy Coney Barrett has not done. She's done a lot of signaling that she supports uh, stare decisis in almost all cases, or doesn't support in almost all cases, but sees it as a very important legal principle to adhere to, which puts her at odds with the you know, most quote-unquote conservative wing of the Supreme Court, like, you know, Justice Thomas. So I think it's clear that she shares Scalia's views on the importance of stare decisis, but with the important caveat that she hasn't made the caveat Scalia seemed to make of saying that Roe v. Wade is particularly wrongly decided and the Supreme Court should be willing to, like they did in the Lochner era, of overturn a case with a lot of precedent backing it up. So let's move on to the election. At the time of this recording, it's less than two weeks, we're now seeing poll numbers come out left and right. We're seeing major gains for Biden in certain states. Trump is holding on to some other states. It, it's, it is a pure dumpster fire. Uh, the debate, as, as of this recording, is final debate is tomorrow. What do you think is going to happen, November 3rd? What have to say? If, if I actually may offer my 50 cents, um, I'd just like to say that this is reminding me a lot of 2016. And I'm not sure if, if Jacob Foster will agree with me, but you know, the polls gave Hillary Clinton such a large lead leading up to Election Day, and then Election Day had us all shocked. And I don't know, I've got a bad feeling about Election Night. What are your thoughts, Jacob? Look, so I think, one, there's a lot of meaningful differences between 2016. So, you know, you can look at, there's a lot more like high quality state polling. There's a lot more polls which wait for education, which was a big source of error in 2016. Um, there's simply been a much more kind of constant pace in the polls. Like there were points in late 2016 where Donald Trump was leading in the polls. There's been no point where in the polling average of national polls, Donald Trump has been leading Joe Biden since, you know, like May or something like that. Uh, so it's been pretty constant. And it's also worth pointing out, Biden's been above 50% in the polling averages for the vast majority of that time. Whereas like with Hillary Clinton, there were a lot of people who were either explicitly undecided or said they were voting for third parties and then ended up voting um, for Donald Trump, which is the kind of like shy, which is the, mo the more intellectually rigorous version of the shy Trump voter effect. So there's a lot of evidence that the very sources of error in 2016 that swung the election to Trump at the last minute don't exist. That being said, there's always a very real chance of polling error. And like, you know, the definition of unexpected error is that it's unexpected. So there's a lot of ways in which we can't possibly fathom. Like, who knows, maybe polls don't really wait on religion. Maybe that will be a meaningful source of error. Or there's a lot of weird stuff with the fact Democrats are overwhelmingly casting mail-in and early ballots, whereas Republicans are much more likely to be waiting for election day to vote. 
So there could be sources of error with how you wait for stuff like that. I also don't think we should assume that uh, the election error will benefit Trump. In fact, I think it's more likely than not that election error would be to the benefit of Biden, both because at this point, there's kind of ideological motivations for both Democrats and Republicans to portray the election as more of a toss-up when the polling data seems to indicate Biden has dramatic lead. Uh, if you're a Democratic pollster or a Republican-leaning pollster, you probably want people to think it's competitive and to come out and vote. Uh, so there's you know, an ideological factor that encourages the polls to be wrong, but for Biden to do unexpectedly well. And I also think it's worth pointing out that it tends to be pollsters have a tendency to overreact. Uh, so like in 2012, the polls underestimated Obama. And in 2016, they underestimated Trump. Part of that may have been due to polls kind of overcorrecting for the sources of error that underestimated Democrats. So there's possible that it's possible that polls did the same thing uh, in 2016 or as a response to 2016. So I'd be more trusting of the polls now rather than less. So are you anticipating a Biden victory in the 2020 yeah, election? I, I'd be willing to, you know, put money on it. Like, I think it is much more likely. It's not impossible for Trump to win. It's quite, you know, possible. And if you look at the electoral map, like, it's not hard to draw up some scenario where Trump wins, uh, especially with the fact that any error is likely to be correlated, you know, if uh, systemically underrated among, say, white working class voters in the Midwest, as he was in 2016. It's not crazy to see a kind of uniform eight or 10 point swing across like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Indiana, Maine, maybe to his benefit, which would probably swing the electoral college to him, even if that's only 1% of voters overall. To the same degree, if we're overestimating turnout among Hispanic or black voters, or they're more Republican leaning than anticipated, a lot of the Sun Belt could swing towards Trump. And, you know, if he holds on to any Midwestern states at all, if he's carrying North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Arizona as well, he's going to be in pretty good shape. So it's not crazy to see Trump winning, but I think it's pretty clear Biden is favored to win. Uh, and the most dramatic sources of potential polling error, in my opinion, don't seem likely to change that. There's been a lot of talk of traditional Republican strongholds possibly going to Biden. Some like North Carolina, some say Texas. Some say Georgia. In your opinion, what Republican strongholds do you anticipate may end up going to Biden on election? So I think North Carolina, you know, Biden's clearly favored in the polls there, and I'd be inclined to say the polls are correct. Um, like one of the interesting things about some of these Republican strongholds is that we're starting to have early voting data come in. And while it's a very dangerous thing to base too many assumptions off of early voting data, it could potentially capture stuff that the polls aren't. So if you go by the polls, kind of North Carolina is probably slightly leaning towards Biden. Georgia's roughly a toss-up, and Texas is probably leaning towards Trump. If you look at early voting data, you know, Texas seems to indicate roughly identical increases in turnout compared to 2016 in both Republican-leaning and Democratic-leaning counties, uh, which is either kind of nothing or it's possible it's indicative of a Trump surge because presumably Republicans are more likely to be the voters on election day. But then I guess you could probably argue with the data because a lot of those traditionally Republican counties might in fact be swinging towards Democrats. So early voting data is kind of out in Texas. North Carolina and Georgia, there's some important stuff in the voting data, which I think makes it clear that North Carolina is a lot more likely to swing to Biden than Georgia, uh, than Georgia is, which is early voting data includes race. Um, or the race of about 90% of people who've cast ballots in those states. 
And in the South in particular, race is a very, very strong predictor of how you vote. Oh, and the other thing is, if Democrats are to win, you probably need to see them having huge turnout among Black voters in particular in the early vote, both because Black voters in general, um, you know, for obvious reasons with a history of massive voter disenfranchisement, are much more likely to come out when given the option to vote early and to a lesser degree to vote by mail. Black voters also lean very Democratic, so a lot of Democratic institutions uh, and political figures encouraging Democratic voters. If Democrats are to win, you would probably expect to see a real meaningful increase in Black turnout in the early vote compared to what it was in the 2016 election overall. And so when you look at North Carolina, currently, I think people who report by race are about 10 points more likely to be Black than they were in the 2016 electorate overall. So like in North Carolina, in 2016, about 12% of all voters were Black who cast their votes. And in the early vote right now, it's something like 22%, which is consistent with the idea that Democrats are going to win in North Carolina, in part due to a surge in Black voter participation. Uh, assuming Biden manages to swing it a bit in the suburbs, that's probably the scenario. That data is consistent with the idea that Democrats are going to win. In November, electorate overall, in the 2018 electorate overall, was about 30% Black. And in the early vote, it is 30%, maybe if you generously reassign people whose race is unknown, maybe it's 32% Black. And considering that in both of these states, it is almost certain that election day turnout is going to be much whiter than the early vote, this is a bad sign for Democrats in Georgia, like a really bad sign. The areas where polling error could be, could be in how people model likely uh, in votes. Uh, Georgia's actually had much lower black voter turnout prior to the Obama era. Like I think in 2004, about 25% of the electorate was black. Uh, in 2008, 2012, and then 2016 had a bit of a lagging effect from that potentially. It was more like 30%. You know, Stacey Abrams in 2018, it was 30% as well. 30% is a bit of a historical high. And I think a lot of the hopes of Democrats in Georgia rely on that either staying the same or potentially even increasing. Uh, and what the polling data shows is it'll probably be that high in the early vote, but it's almost certainly going to be lower on election day. And if it's going to be lower on election day, it's pretty easy to see Georgia ending up with something closer to an electorate that's 25% black which is an environment which is going to be much harder for Biden to win in. Uh, you know, be putting your money on Georgia staying red and your money on North Carolina turning blue. Because that's been the Lincoln Project has been all bull in on Arizona, given uh, Martha McSally in the Senate. She's imploding right now against Mark Kelly. What do you know to turn, to turn blue? Arizona, I'd probably say, is one of the most likely places to turn blue. Um, in part, I think it's almost certainly going to be blue for the Senate race except history of losing to Democrats in Arizona in years where Democrats are doing well, uh, that she will have lost both of Arizona's Senate races come November 4th. Clear. Clear than not, Biden will win in Arizona. Once again, you have a situation like the election overall, where he's kind of been consistently leading in polls. Um, there's some more variation in Arizona than the election overall, and certainly he's leading in Arizona by a much smaller margin than he is in the nation overall. But Arizona does seem like a place where it's pretty likely democratic. Uh, the one potential warning sign I've seen in what data I've looked at 
is 538 did a great analysis based off of a couple of surveys with huge sample sizes. I think it was like Pew and one others, but they had like a sample size of 60,000 voters. Um, and what they showed was there was a massive swing. I think one of the largest swings of any demographic group in general of college educated Hispanic voters towards Trump, about a 25 point swing in the margin compared to how they voted in 2016. This is one of the fastest growing demographic groups, uh, hard to wait for and analyze in the polls because it's a relatively small share of the electorate, uh, always complicated for racial minorities. But that is a kind of warning sign, which if it's true, especially if it's slightly more true in Arizona, could be for a lot of Trump's likely losses among white women, uh, largely white suburbs in particular. Uh, and that's a scenario where Trump sneaks out an unexpected victory. Though once again, if Trump wins Arizona, it is an unexpected victory, which is a little ironic, uh, considering Arizona's, at least what I think of as one of the reddest states, you know, in America, just speaking historically. Georgia possibly going to buy, even though you said there's a major caveat. Why is why Arizona said Ruby Red now? I think the answer is pretty simple, which is that Trump is one of the least popular presidents in modern American history. Uh, you know when. It's hard to find a single poll during your presidency that puts you at above 50% approval rating, especially with all the support you have kind of along partisan lines. You know, it doesn't bode well for your reelection campaign. Like I'd point out that national polls, even back in like 2015, which put Biden in a hypothetical matchup, almost all showed Biden winning. Um, and they also showed Biden generally winning by larger margins than they showed other Democratic figures, though whether that's predictive back in 2015 is a little bit at odds. But I think Trump popular figure and both him and Biden have worked very hard to keep Trump the center of attention. And if it's a referendum on Trump, especially on stuff like his personal character, his handling of COVID, uh, where he tends to lose, especially among people who aren't, you know, super partisan Republicans, uh, which happens to be, and most of the country is not super partisan Republicans. Issues where Biden, the election hasn't focused on those, and both Biden and Trump have done a great job on focusing on Trump, something that pretty poorly, and it pulls poorly in states even as red as, you know, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, and North Carolina. You agree with mentioned that an increased vote has really been benefiting Democrats. Do you agree that in order to remain competitive, Republicans have to diversify their base? Yeah, like, of course, if Republicans need to remain competitive, they need to get the support of non-white voters and stuff. Though one of the ironies of the Trump era is it seems pretty clear, and you know, we'll see on election day what the actual outcomes are, but from what polling data I have seen, uh, particularly 538 had that great comparison with sample size in the tens of thousands, um, massively reduced race as a source of partisanship. Like, you know, if you look at the outcome in 2012 or 2016, there's massive, massive differences in the margins of white and black voters for respective candidates. Like, you know, in some cases, literally 100-point differences in some states. Though more often, it's like 80-point differences in the margin going to be the case um, in 2020. Uh, we'll see Trump probably lose with a more diverse uh, you saw Romney lose with. So it's worth pointing out that Republicans need to win votes in general, and it doesn't matter the race. So it's not simply, you know, demographics are destiny and America's changing racial demographics, both death 
of the Republican Party. Like Republicans are probably going to lose big in 2020. And they're probably going to lose big because they lose tons and tons and tons of white voters, uh, you know, even conservative white voters or religious white voters. Believe than not, but that's a much harder thing to call. I needed to, you know, gun to my head, make a prediction. Will Republicans lose the Senate or not? I'd say yes. Uh, but that'd be like, oh, you know, put your money on Republicans losing the Senate. There's lots of ways they can still hold it. You know, one of the big things is Georgia has a special election. That's one of the places that like 538, I think, is currently projecting it as like Democrats having a 50 or 55 percent chance of winning that Georgia Senate seat. I think one of the sources of potential error in projections like 538 is that uh, these election are probably going to go a lot worse for Democrats if they do win in a big way, uh, as well as just the fact that like the seats, Democrats, uh, they can certainly make it up, but it's not crazy to see Republicans holding seats where they're expected to lose, you know, even like Iowa and Maine, which are like in the toss-up lean Democrat kind of territory. Like those are two very competitive Republican candidates. And I won't be surprised to see either of them hold on to their seats. And if you have a situation where Joni Ernst, um, Mrs. and Collins are coming into 2020 Senate, you know, I, I suspect it'll have a Republican majority. If not, it's Democrats winning, but it's quite likely it's going to be with 50 or 51 seats. So Republicans could keep the Senate, probably slightly less likely to keep it. But unlike the presidential race, it seems to be pretty competitive. With that is where Republican senators run ahead of or behind you know, in South Carolina, for example, lots have been made about how Lindsey Graham is likely to lose all voters who will vote for President Trump but see Lindsey Graham as kind of a rhino and not and won't vote against him. And it's expected most people voting for Joe Biden there are going to be voting down ballot Democrat. So like, you could see Lindsey Graham lose South Carolina. I think it's unlikely, but you could see him lose South Carolina, even if Trump wins there. Same degree, you know, Texas is kind of a swing state now. It's certainly Republican-leaning, even right now. Uh, but you could see Trump, but I think it's far more likely Trump would lose than Cornwood would lose Republicans, especially in places like Iowa and Maine, uh, Arizona, often in their ability to run ahead of President Trump. That's all the questions we have. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything else that's on your mind you want to get out there to our, our, our listeners? It's a good idea. Um, look at all the candidates. Uh, some to have elections every couple of years, not only because uh, look at, but because it's a real privilege to live in a free and republic. Uh, obviously, educate your vote. That's, have a Twitter um, account. You want to tell us about it? It is at Wonk Data. Uh, I generally make small predictions and hot takes about the, some small analysis of polls. Uh, if you're interested in following drill developments, it's nonpartisan. Don't worry if you're just interested in trying to get a sense of who's going to win, who's not. Uh, follow. At Wonk Data. M-K-D-A-T-A. To the show again and for joining us a second. It's a pleasure talking with really you, and uh, I hope people found this interesting. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zers Talk Politics. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And send us any and all questions regarding the news or politics, because your questions make the show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.